0: Hey, are you ready to demonstrate your organization's commitment to data protection and government? And I mean your company, not just you.
1: Boost brand trust with AI certification, incorporating principles from industry standards like NIST and the OECD.
0: And you can navigate all of those privacy regulations confidently with TrustArc's robust AI governance solutions.
1: Get a trustee certified privacy seal for your company, signifying... Organization's commitment to responsible data practices
0: with Trustee's proven methodology over years, you can achieve compliance with AI laws around the world and also enhance your general privacy posture.
1: Secure your brand's competitive advantage with a trusted seal now. Get AI certified today. Visit Trustark.com/AI-certified. That's Trustark.com/AI-certified.
2: This is Serious Privacy by
1: Trustar. Here are your hosts, Paul Breitbart and Kay Royal. Welcome to the 100th episode of Serious Privacy. Both Kay and I are very excited that we have reached this amazing milestone, because currently there are some 550,000 active podcasts, including several dozen related to privacy and data protection actually was shocked to read that the average podcast only gets 27 downloads a week. Just imagine putting in all that work for just a handful of listeners. So we count ourselves very lucky that we have many more listeners. Thank you to all of you, with well over 60,000 downloads since we started, and by now close to 700 listeners per episode. All of this is largely possible thanks to the support of TrustArt to get the podcast started in the first place and to allow us to continue, even though that both of us have left the company. So we therefore celebrate the 100th episode with two of our key original TrustArt partners, Chris Babel, CEO, and Hilary Wandell, who has now moved on to Dun & Bradstreet. But don't worry, this won't be an episode full of self-congratulations. There are a lot of actual developments to discuss on the state of data protection in 2022. My name is Paul Breitbart.
0: And I'm Kay Royal, and welcome to Serious Privacy. I am really excited for this episode. We are thinking of making stickers to take to IAPP, and I think one of them should be Kay's favorite sayings, because it's either going to be "I love it" or "That's fantastic." I don't think Paul has a separate <laughs> saying other than "But wait, Kay." But wait, it depends.
1: It depends. It's <laughs> my favorite saying in data protection. It depends.
0: <laughs> it depends. So the unexpected question today: I'm not getting out of a book, since given what's happened in privacy lately, I'm gonna I'm gonna hit Chris and Hillary and Paul with. What are you going to name the new Privacy Shield? <laughs>
2: <laughs> Safe Harbor 3. I don't think we should. we should just go back to the original. No, we shouldn't do that. But what is it? I, I honestly can't even remember what it is.
1: The Transatlantic Data Transfer Agreement.
3: Transatlantic Data Privacy Framework. Yes.
1: Yeah. Tad p-
3: Framework. It's framework. Frameworks, we know. Relax. We like frameworks. Yeah. Because it's a framework, it is going to last because frameworks do not go away. They may evolve, but they don't go away.
0: They may get covered.
3: Mm-hmm. Repealed or revoked by future presidents. There's a power in using a model like that, especially in light of the current times and where other significant actions are being taken, especially in cooperation with other governments. I think this right. is actually a good model. The other thing I would say that, to Kay, your point is that you have to start somewhere. Exactly. And who's to say that the standards set forth through an executive order could not in the future be laid out further in binding legislation that is agreed upon by our Congress. So I am encouraged by the concepts that were laid out, the agreement in principle, the way in which the rights of redress will be handled through this new court. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I'm excited to see the details.
0: Yeah. I guess one thing that I'm really worried about is for the past two years, though, companies maybe haven't made a concerted effort to put standard contractual clauses in across the board because we were waiting on the new modules. Then the new modules came out. Now we're waiting on the, the transfer module. Unless I miss some earth shattering news lately, we don't have that either. And and I do accept I could have missed earth shattering news lately. I think Chris and I are both sick as dogs, or sicker than dogs. I think dogs are laughing at us. But it's <laughs> I see this. And do you think that those companies who have made an effort to put in standard contractual clauses? And I know negotiating has been a mm-hmm, mm-hmm, with some of these companies to put the standard contractual clauses in place. That's going to go away if the company certifies to the new bridge shield framework no, plan charm
1: there i really disagree are
0: they gonna go away
1: no they won't because nobody is going to be certain that that this framework or whatever we will call it will survive so yeah. everybody will still want to have the backups in place out of the fear that we will have a shrams 3 or whatever other challenge that that could happen yeah yeah, and that I mean, that is also what I would do. I mean, I'm negotiating data protection agreements right now. Well, I agree I've with got you. To-
3: I agree with you. People are going to want belts and suspenders because there's just been too much that's been unpredictable. And making sure that you've got both. You've got a backstop measure. I, I do hope, though, that some of what appears to be very onerous contract negotiations that are causing privacy pros and attorneys to end up spending way more time negotiating contract language than really focusing on accountability. Sorry to get us a little off tangent, but not really, sorry, because I actually think it should always be about accountability. I think that's such a problem. I think people aren't able to focus on the right things because of the challenges here. So hoping that with a new framework, whatever it may be called, that it will at least remove some of the complexity around the negotiations in contracting.
1: No, I agree. And I'm I'm slightly less optimistic than the three of you are. Uh maybe that is my European nature and the wait and see approach the devil will certainly be in the detail here. And I don't disagree that the executive order could do the trick, but it needs to be a very strong executive order for it to really work. And I'm missing a lot of detail still in in the press releases and the fact sheets that we have seen. I mean, a lot of this, especially the benefits of the deal, safe and secure data flows and durable and reliable legal basis, we could have written that two years ago. We could have said that there would be a new set of rules of binding safeguards to limit access to data to what is necessary and proportionate, because that was actually the language that was also used in the privacy shield. So I'm hopeful, but I'm not yet optimistic until I see the legal text that, that is under negotiation. Skeptic, A little, yes, a little. And that is also based on everything that we know about the U.S. intelligence agencies, what they are doing. Also, the recent decision of the U.S. Supreme Court on standing, um, still saying that you really need the actual evidence in it to be able to go to court. So I'm very curious to see how they will get around the standing requirement with this new court that will be created. Will it just be called a court or will it be a real or will it just be like the ombudsperson but then with multiple ombudspersons? I'm not sure yet. So I think it can be done if there is real willingness to make it a strong executive order. What I do think is, is very hopeful, and that is actually Gabriella Zanfier who pointed that out in her analysis of of the deal, is that there is so much reference being made to privacy and data protection and fundamental rights especially in the declarations from the White House. What we've seen in the previous two iterations was the main focus on the commercial side. And now we really see the focus on the fundamental rights side of things. And that makes me probably more hopeful by now than I was last week when when the press release uh, was issued first.
0: Oh my God, right.
1: (laughs) We will go through it again.
0: I saw a question the other day from someone uh, at TrustArk that says, do we certify to the TAD bling, bling, bling? I'm like, oh, (laughs) that's the name of the new uh, potential bridge or I'm going to call it the charm because, you know, third time's the charm. I'm just going to call it the charm. Mm,
1: No, I'm going for the data deal. The data deal? Easy, quick, the data deal.
3: Okay. You know, I haven't given you one yet. Let me think. I like the third time's charm. Huh. Not feeling very creative today, so I'm just going to (laughs) say the impenetrable data transfer network. Impenetrable, I like it.
0: Impenetrable, like beyond shield. Beyond shield. Oh, I like beyond shield. Shrim's nightmare.
1: (laughs) Or Biden's nightmare or Van der Leyen's nightmare.
0: You know, Chris Hoff said that he would like to come on our podcast. He said the government just had to do some conflicts checked or whatever, and I haven't gotten any email from anyone with the government doing any type of conflicts check. So hopefully we can still get Chris on here at some point. I'm sure he's a little busy right now. And he probably has a
3: good name for it. I'd like to hear what he thinks.
0: He probably has the name he calls it in private versus the name he calls it in (laughs) public. You want to hear
3: that
2: one? Officially,
1: yeah.
0: Exactly. We need to take him out, get him high on chocolate.
1: What do you make of the deal? What do you think about it?
0: Okay. I'm not hiding the fact that I am very, very optimistic about it. I know that is getting a lot of criticism from both sides of the ocean, talking about how it, nothing can happen if it's not U.S. statutory changes, that an executive order is transient, not permanent. If that's the case, why are they so worried about twelve thirty three three three? But I am making no bones of the fact that I am very optimistic. This has been some very intelligent people, a lot of people, working on it for quite some time with the distinct driver of it being the right thing in place that cannot be overturned like the other two were. So I'm very optimistic. I'm a pretty optimistic person anyway. So I'm very optimistic this is the right way to go. And for those that say yes, but an executive order is not permanent, you gotta start somewhere.
1: Legislation isn't permanent.
0: Apparently, educating our legislators for two years isn't getting them any closer to anything. It takes a long time to educate people on privacy, and having an executive order will be the foundation of having something in place that the legislators can have some faith in and some confidence in and actually build from there, knowing that this is the right direction to go. Otherwise, we're leaving it up to them to build something, and they they don't know what the heck they're doing.
1: So, Chris, what do you think? Well, I'll try to squeak through this, so sorry for
2: the voice, everybody, but been a little under the weather. Thanks for having me on the 100th. Excited to be here. A lot of what Kay said, I totally agree with you. I think, you know, one, the companies need something, right? So let's start first with, it has been a hellacious year and a half for all sorts of company shapes and sizes, as they really don't have a path. And yes, we always read about the big bad things that happen to Facebook or the, or the big tech companies, but the amount of churn and time and effort and energy that you see mid-sized companies across the U.S. trying to do something right, but not knowing what to do, not having clarity on what to do, and not having it be something that they can wrap their arms around and understand and actually go execute just makes the whole effort. It causes people to be cynical about even trying in the first place for the next law, right? And so if we can't put something together that helps businesses achieve this objective of keeping data safe and knowing what the requirements are, I mean, that's kind of a huge shame. Now, is this the one that does that? I like, hey, am optimistic. I think you have to start somewhere. I think our legislative branch, certainly in the near term, and I think through the next presidential election is not going to get much done. And that's maybe a bit more of an indictment of my own government than I would like to make. <laughs> but I think it's incredibly difficult uh, in the way things are, and that's just the way it is. So starting with something like an executive order, while well, it allows a lot of people to poke holes in it, is a fantastic starting point and kind of the only path I think to get to somewhere better. Great. Hillary?
3: So I also, like Kay, am uh, an optimist and I'm going to agree with Chris on the fact that this is, you have to start somewhere. A couple of thoughts that I have that I wanted to share. One is, I'm encouraged by the fact that it appears so far that at least in principle, the Commercial principles will stand, and that companies who already have been following the privacy shield principles can continue to adhere to them. Those who have maintained their certifications will be able to have the benefit of that. Mm -hmm. I think for many of us, that's what we hoped for. It'll be interesting to see if anything does come out substantively. On the other hand, you know, I've shared with you all, you know, I've been spending a lot of time in recent days working on all of the economic sanctions, and for For those in our audience today who may not be aware, the substantial majority of all the decisions around sanctions are actually made by executive order. And many of those executive orders are quite long-lasting and have very, very significant effects. And they are relied on by other governments around the world when they're making their own decisions around sanctions they refer back. So to me, I think there's power around an executive order, even if it can. What I'm really intrigued about here is... You know, the importance, obviously, of addressing the fundamental rights and freedoms of individuals that need to be honored by the re- recipients, recipients, both from a commercial perspective, but by the governments and the countries in which they operate. And to me, it brings up a broader concept of how do we, that I just wanted to toss back out at you all, is how do we manage this goal of making organizations more accountable? but making them accountable to be thinking about addressing rights and transparency, the interest of individuals in a way that actually drives forward a better society, a better set of communities in which we operate. And to me, like if accountability is done right, we spend less time worrying about the legal nuances, as much as those are fascinating for those of us who are lawyers, but more on how can we innovate for the benefit of individuals where they're actually, we're creating a greater tomorrow. And as a mom, Mm -hmm. this is one of the things I'm most worried about right now is that the way in which technology is evolving is causing people to have these frenzied, frenetic lives where rights are lost. It's all just about the latest information and misinformation. And can't we do more through driving accountability from a data protection perspective to really create a better tomorrow. That's my question back to all of you on this 100th episode. If you don't, can we? I guess it
0: comes down to can we and will we?
1: I think we can and I think we will. I think if you look all around the world, data protection is more and more seen as a fundamental right. People are becoming more vocal about these issues. I'm currently recording from Kenya, where I'm giving a data protection training. We actually...
0: And your son is going down.
1: My son is going down. I actually spoke to the Kenyan data protection commissioner yesterday. We'll play that interview uh, in a moment. But also here, being boots on the ground in Africa, where data protection legislation is very new, people are very eager to learn about it and to understand why it is important, but also realizing that it is important. And not just in the commercial relationships, also in the relations between people, in the relations with their government. You will hear the Data Protection Commissioner say that it is actually much more difficult to get governmental awareness of these issues than private sector awareness, because the private sector, since it is working internationally, is already used to concepts like the GDPR or the the LGPD or other other forms of legislation. I
2: share similar beliefs. And I think that, you know, in my decade of focusing on privacy and it was security before that, you're seeing a fundamental switch in terms of the words. And as, I forget whether it was Paul or you, Hillary. You know, the <laughs> language that you are seeing even out of commerce in U.S. government is starting to feel and sound different, where it is more about kind of holistically doing more the right thing rather than what's the bar that we need to set and You know, everyone runs right up to and a bunch of people spill over and do wrong things with data. And it's just starting to feel a little different. And I think part of that is I think the rest of the world has definitely felt that way for some time. And so it's starting to come back a bit now to the US. But I also think you see, even in the large US tech companies, companies starting to use good data protection, good dealing with privacy issues as a way to differentiate themselves against other big US tech companies.
0: Which we've been predicting for a while.
2: We have, and it's it's maybe a long, too long of a while, but, <laughs> right? <laughs> but it does it does seem like we're starting to reach a, a different feeling place. You know, that is one thing that I, I forgot to mention earlier. You know, we always talk about regulation in terms of once you pass a law, it, it it's sad, and it usually takes a decade for, or longer, sometimes, for it to get revised. And there is a part of the executive order concept that is good in that framework and that it can be revised and updated much more easily than going all the way back through. So I think that's a piece of that puzzle that I haven't seen talked about as much as a positive because we know the tech will way speed past most laws and regs, right? Even if you try to build the law and regs more of a framework rather than specific, it's still difficult.
0: Yeah, of our law enforcement measures, statutes, regulations, executive orders, judicial decisions, common law, of all of them, probably the easiest one whether it's good or bad, to change is the executive order. Statutes, regulations all take time. Federal agencies take time for their rulemaking procedures. And very little of it can actually keep up with the technology. And what we're seeing on the judicial side is they don't even want to address it. When they do address a case that has technology implications and privacy, they very much leave it in the realm of it's very fact-specific, specifically addressing these facts, this case, this instance, because they don't want to speak on something that's going to have longer-range impact because they don't understand the technology. So I think in that regard, one of the things that I think is going to have to happen is that these big tech companies, who may often be seen as the bad guys, but they're not, I think they're going to have to be very much in favor and positive in driving change forward. They're going to set the tone for a lot. Like Google just came out with a new announcement about changing their Google Analytics. That way they could comply with the European requirements. That's what it's going to take.
1: And let's hope they're successful in doing that.
3: But don't you, don't you think in part, I mean, yes, big tech can lead in response to an all tech. At all companies, for that matter, right. can lead in response to decisions that force them to change because it's no longer lawful. But also, can't they lead? In I'm going back to my question from prior because I'm fix, fixated on this. Oh, one.
0: you you noticed I didn't <laughs> answer that.
3: Okay, can't they lead in terms of accountable practices that drive a better tomorrow? And I think that there's just so much up yes for innovation. That takes into consideration people and who we are as human beings and rewarding lives, like how yeah. a combination of data protection principles and the broader set of what it means to have a good life can be infused into technology together. Well, mm-hmm. Apple is very much trying to do that. I mean, they've taken well, a
0: lot of step forwards to for data protection, privacy, security honoring people's wishes. I think that's been a fantastic move that we've seen over the past few years, but especially in the past year or so, they have been very, very active in it and it's impacting companies and people are starting to take notice.
1: It is, but even they are not perfect. I think I think in, 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 in response to Hillary's direct question, yes, accountability can really help yeah. drive the change that we need, but it is also a change in mindset that we need because companies need to start thinking a little less about the value of data and how much money they can make.
0: Or how much money they lose if they change.
1: Exactly, but also about the other kinds of impact that their data use has. And as long as the equation is always, yes, but then we stand to to lose X million euros or dollars, and we are not willing to do that, then we won't see the change that we need.
3: So be the change. Do we think Chris? Hope. Hey, Paul. Don't mind me just asking my own questions back to you guys.
1: Go ahead. I, do you,
0: I mean, Chris, Hillary, just knowing we all know that. you. We love you. We invited you here for a reason.
3: <laughs> I have. This is such a great dialogue. So, Chris, in light of all of your experience in the greater big finance world, with where sustainable investing and ESG are going, do you think that possibly, just to what Paul Paul was saying, that there is an opportunity with respect to socially responsible investing that we could actually make more headway there? Or do you think it's just bad?
2: I was going to add there too. I mean, what Paul was describing, right, is exactly this, which is how do you think about environmental issues as you're running your company? Because the negative externalities that you cause are negative for the planet and companies are starting to try and internalize those and think about how to do things better, right? Exactly. And this is a similar concept in that I can go make a $100 and this is legal and therefore I should go do it, but it doesn't really make anyone feel good who's working on the project and you're not treating people as people and, and whatnot, right? And so I definitely think that it's, I mean, ESG is one of the hottest topics until Ukraine, Russia happened, and then it's kind of not talked about as much over the last few weeks, but like it's been building for a very long time. And in one regard, it seems like everything's been thrown in it. In the other regard, you, when you look at things individually, it's like, actually, all these things do have this negative externality that businesses haven't taken into account for our governments for yeah. a very long time. And it's why we are where we are. Right. So I think there is definitely in the investing side of it. I, I you know, not back to the Russia, Ukraine thing, but there were a bunch of people who touted how they were investing very ESG like and very focused on the right issues, but yet they had a lot of money still that they lost when things changed. And so I think that has even caused a lot of people to look back at this responsible investing and the people who were saying that what they were doing and whether they were really doing it or not. But yeah, I think that's something that people start to notice when things like that get accounted for in that way. And people say, no, I'm not going to invest in a company that does X, Y, and Z. You haven't seen that yet.
0: I think a couple of years ago, I wrote an article for Association of Corporate Counsel on privacy being the fourth prong of ESG. So I'll see if I can't pull that up. Not that I thought anybody would ever pay attention to it, just that it became a thing because of the societal and environmental impacts that we're having. Seriously,
1: Paul. So, Hillary, you are now working for a, a really global company. I think Dunham Bradstreet has presence in almost every single country around the world. Do you see a lot of differences in in your work? on privacy, on ESG from the various regions around the world, from the Americas, from Europe, but also the upcoming em- economies in, in the Southern Hemisphere?
3: Yeah, well, definitely there is there are differences in different markets. One of the things that's fascinating to me is how much cultural and community expectations play such a significant role because yeah. people see the world differently. and different parts of the world. And while there's a fundamental set of consistent principles we typically see, as we all know, like aligned with the OECD guidelines, there are such differences that we see in certain markets. So case in point, I spent a lot of time, as I know we all have, dealing with the new PIPL or PIPL, depending on which way you prefer to talk about. We don't
0: talk about that second way. No.
3: No, we're Go not doing Pipple. it. <laughs> PIPL, PIPL, personal PIPL. information protection law. But no, it's not a privacy law. Although people call it a privacy law all the mm-hmm. time, it's a personal information protection law. And that relates to the, the broader approach that China has taken to regulating data and in a way that's actually consistent with their overarching concerns and interests that they're trying to balance. And as we oftentimes talk about it As a team, we think about it more in terms of overall data compliance and what does data compliance look like when it goes to interests not only of individuals, which absolutely need to be respected, but are respected in different ways depending on the part of the world that you're from. Sometimes community-based respect is more important than individual respect and how do you balance those things. At, At the same time, interests of businesses, particularly small businesses that are not legal persons and how do the rights of individuals in the professional context work in connection with their own responsibilities to run a safe and sound and responsible business and where data protection obligations come up against then responsibilities that those own businesses have, how do we balance individual rights in that context becomes a very interesting to try to manage. And then when you hold to your question, put ESG in the middle of it, a lot of what's really interesting to me, looking at some of the external standards, such as the GRI or SASB standards around data protection in particular, I, I think they are good, but I think they also need to evolve. And what I mean by that is oftentimes uh, requirements around business ethics more in the governance space that are totally separate from the S pieces that are getting after cybersecurity, data security, and uh, the Privacy, if you will. And in my view, in order to manage a lot of these interrelated obligations in a consistent way across a business, where people who are at a product team or a technology team um, or a marketing team need to think about how the pieces fit together, putting them in separate buckets doesn't necessarily help with good business decision making. Finding a way to integrate those pieces so that people are looking at it more holistically. Is very beneficial. So I think we're going to continue to see a shift around not just data protection for individuals, but data protection more broadly and responsible uses of data. As we see, Paul, and I'll maybe turn it back to you with the AI, the proposed AI Act, and the Data Act, and the Data Governance Act, and all of the things that are being proposed in the EU around management and protection of data more broadly. I think we're going to see continued evolution
1: yeah i think i think that's right and in, in, indeed the european legislative framework is very much under development the digital markets act was uh, agreed last week the digital services act should be agreed within the next couple of weeks uh, which will include certain non-tracking and non-advertising provisions especially where children are concerned you see that the ai regulations indeed and the data regulations are also extending the scope of these kind of laws beyond just personal data, so also including the non-personal data or the the non-identifiable data, which basically are set to the same standards as GDPR already has for personal data. On the one hand, probably will make it easier for companies to comply. On the other hand, will offer another headache because then all those data transfer decisions will also start to apply to, to the non-personal data that is now exempt. So my question to Chris would then be, is TrustArc ready to support that? It's not going to
2: be easy for companies to handle or tech companies to help companies handle it, right? But yes, we're anxiously looking to help companies with the next, what, thousand laws? I forget yeah. where we're at right now, about a thousand that have some level of provisions that many of those laws are ignored by everyone. <laughs> A few of them are watched by everyone, and there's a lot in the middle that are watched by a few, depending on where you are and what you do. So I think your point there, Paul, is when I even take further, that's what's happening in Europe. And as we know, we finally had our fourth state, a lot more states up for grabs in the U.S. Like, it's just not going to stop. No. And so how companies try to tackle this thing, back to Hillary's question a bit more, holistically, a bit more comprehensively, a bit more framework oriented to make certain that it scales across all these programs and maybe even the broader ESG programs that companies are moving towards that are maybe more compliance officer focused and privacy officer focused. But it's coming and it's coming fast and furious.
0: It is. And I was just about to look at the resources for TrustArk because, I mean, this is something we should take a commercial break for and tell you there are some wonderful (laughs) webinars coming up. April 5th has everything you need to know about online advertising, cookies, and data privacy. April 14th is privacy management made sense. And then also in April is data security and privacy, two sides of the same coin. And then in May, we come up with uh, U.S. state privacy laws. Well, we'll add Utah in there, any other states that have passed between then, and then update that. So I think this feeds into is TrustArc is ready.
1: And somewhere in between, you and I will also be doing a TrustDark webinar on this new international transatlantic framework thingy that was announced last week. So, yeah, lots to to look out for.
2: I think you officially named it a thingy.
1: A thingy. thingy. Yeah, well, that might be for now. (laughs) (laughs) For now, that might probably work as long as we are certain that it until we are certain that it will actually survive.
0: Yes, I I think the thingy is perfect. I'm actually trying to create stickers to have made to bring to IAPP because it's probably the only swag I can actually personally carry myself is a bunch of stickers.
3: I just thought of a name, Kay. the thingy. I thought of a name for the thingy. It is the, so not creative, but it actually works for me, and I'll tell you why. Because the impenetrable thing wasn't quite cutting it. It was just wasn't working for you. Just was sticking no. With you. I think. So here's what I think, and I'm going to tie into other themes that we were talking about. Ready? It is not that creative, but you could make an acronym out of it. Not an easy one to, anyway. But I'm I'm digressing. The data transfer sustainability note ESG framework because that's just last. So like and it's all that. about data transfer. So hint to and people. sustainability and sustainability
1: the, the DTSF. DTSF.
3: Yeah, and it's a thingy.
1: The thingy. The DTSF thingy. (laughs) I like it. And the advantage is that then maybe you would be able to expand that to other jurisdictions as well. If the executive order is any good and written with some sort of foresight, then maybe other jurisdictions would be able to copy some of it into their own policies, like they were doing, as you said, for, for sanctions, which might actually help to also expand. because. Yes, the European-U.S. transatlantic relationship is very important, but let's not forget there are about 170 other countries that do not have adequacy, where we do not have standardized assessments, where data also will need to flow, at least to many of them. I don't think that a lot of data will flow to to Russia and Ukraine right now, but for many other jurisdictions, we will also need solutions.
0: Well, we did have a question in a webinar that asked, you know, what are... Companies who have vendors in the Ukraine supposed to be doing? um, Because a lot of companies, especially, used engineers and coders and all in the Ukraine. And so that was a very practical, hands on question is what do you do?
1: Yeah. Right. Well, I mean, the first
0: thing you do is you be humane.
1: Yeah. And you care for your staff, you care for your people. Yeah. At the same time, the Ukrainian government, despite the war, is still functioning. Parliament is still sitting and adopting laws. So to the extent yeah, heads that
0: it's off to the Ukraine for that. Right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. But to the extent that that Ukraine is still functioning and has control over their own territories, they are still a rule of law state and the legislation still applies despite all the difficulties. And yeah, that they're, they're an impressive people.
0: Yeah, they really, really are. They really are. So, OK, so let's transition this then if we're talking about strategy and global and sustainability. I'm going to ask the question that Chris and I spoke the other day about. What does this mean for people who work in privacy? I mean, have we missed the boat?
1: Job security.
0: Yeah, job security, hands on. But I mean, really, we're data strategists. We are, we're the ones that make sure companies use data in innovative but legal ways. People see us walk in the room. They're like, oh, crap, you're going to stop us from doing something. And when instead they should be, oh, yay, you're going to make sure that what data we collect is legal and we value the company. But have we missed our seat at the table? Is it gone? Is the rise of cybersecurity lawyers because they're rolling privacy and data protection under the security departments, but yet they don't understand the laws. Therefore, now we need not just privacy attorneys, but cybersecurity attorneys, because you need someone to interpret the rules and the regulations for them. What's our place now? What should our place be?
2: So, yeah, I think. When GDPR first came, at least for me coming from security, I got to see the rise of the CISO, right? Because it was just tons of threats, vulnerabilities through the late 90s, early 2000s, lots of new technology to deploy. And that became a very strategic job function very quickly, reporting at pretty high levels and the the chief was a chief reasoned title, if you will. With privacy, we've seen the same kind of explosion in opportunity and to some degree I, I... don't know if I fault the GDPR fully, but when we looked at the GDPR and we saw the description of a DPO and that they would run around and do a lot of really kind of tactical related things, I think a bunch of our profession went down the path, the rat hole of checklists to dot every I and cross every T. And others kind of went the path of being more strategic in some of the areas that we're talking about and thinking about how do we help this organization become good stewards of data to both, you know, delight customers and, Grow revenue and business and help the business people. And those two different paths, I think, have the chief privacy officer really in kind of a weird spot. Cause in some companies that we work with, it's a very senior level position with someone that's seasoned and experienced. And in other organizations, it's pushed really low and under something that you wouldn't really expect. And I'm always surprised by that. And oftentimes it's the, you know, maybe the style of the company. It's the whoever was in the role before. I think. Well, I agree with you entirely in that it's great job security. Privacy jobs are not going away anytime soon. And it is incredibly difficult to hire one. The flip side of that is I see too often.
0: It's incredibly difficult to hire a good one.
2: I'd even say one, not even a good one. I just, it's hard.
0: Not even a good one, just one.
2: But I think one with experience, right? But I think that the, the challenge the profession has is to make certain that it doesn't get caught up in dotting every I and crossing every T Mm -hmm. and become the office of, of no. And that's easy to say because you're not officially saying no, but when that's your focus always, rather than business unit coming and asking a question and the answer being, we can't do this because of this, as opposed to, I'd like to help you figure out how to do that. I know that in this area, it's difficult to do it that way for these reasons. How else can I help you figure out how to do it? Just that difference in phrasing is something that I see again and again between the yep. tactical versus strategic. And once you're up in the strategic realm of privacy, it's becoming all these other things. I mean, Hillary, you're not a privacy officer anymore. You're chief compliance officer. And privacy is one of many things that are under you. And that is, I think, is the opportunity for this profession and field because the privacy issues are the hot topics of the day. And they apply everywhere, not just every size company, type of market, every geographic region. It's all these things combined at the same time. And that is a fantastic wind at our backs from an industry profession, but it's how we help business people see the potential of the role to work in concert with business people to drive success as opposed to not. And that sometimes I fear we are missing. And I always reinforce things like this to think about how you're interacting with your business teams day to day.
3: I I agree with you and I'll add a couple of supplemental thoughts, but I wanted to start firstly by saying, I think, Kay, hey, you said it well with the term data strategist. And the thing that I'm recognizing more and more being a part of the data company, that for which personal data is actually the minority of the data, it's a lot of other data. It's the responsibilities around data, using data in a values-driven way that actually brings mm-hmm great outcomes for both the business, but also the constituencies that you're seeking to serve is a really important part of how you have the conversations. And I think where people get frustrated with compliance professionals, I'll start there, but also sometimes with lawyers and privacy teams is when we get too caught up in the nuances and the details as opposed to helping the business think through, what are you really trying to achieve? Who are you trying to serve in what you're trying to achieve and how best can you get there using the different data that you have available to you and the tools you have to be transparent, to be responsible, to help people be able to exercise their rights effectively. Like all of those things, if you talk about them in a more values and outcomes driven way, make for a much more fruitful conversation than the ones that people are like, oh yeah, I don't have time for that. I'll send my most junior person to work with you. So I think to Chris's point, it's elevating the conversation to what are the business goals you're trying to achieve? What right. data do you need to get there? And you know, oftentimes, as we all talk about, do you really need data that is identifiable of an individual to achieve that goal? And that is oftentimes not at the forefront of most people's minds um, unless they've been educated this way. They always like get as much data as possible, but not thinking about you can have all the data you want in the world, pseudonymize it, code it tokenize it. There are things you can do to facilitate the outcomes that you want without having to have identifiers associated with that information. Right.
1: Yeah, I fully agree.
3: And that's one premise that I've always lived by is you can be as
0: innovative as you would like to do. You can accomplish your goals. There's almost always a legal way of doing it.
1: I agree. And that's also what I what I started telling people when I started my new role. I'm not here to say no. I'm actually here to help you get things done In a legal, in a compliant way. And if I have to say no, then you also know that it's going to be a serious, uh, a serious no, because I will first always start looking for alternatives to get you to the purpose that you need and to get you the data that you need to help grow the business, because also that is what I'm there for. But if I really do have to say no, then it is no.
0: It's a hard line. You don't cross it
1: and there are certain things.
0: I've come across very few of those hard lines.
1: Yeah, but there are still a few, and and some are temporary hard lines. I think there are a few right now still related to U.S. data transfers, but once the thingy, the thingy, the, the sustainable <laughs> thingy is up and running, we may actually be able to, uh, to use many more U.S. services again than I'm currently comfortable doing.
0: I've definitely got a backronym thingy. Oh, Paul, don't take it this way, but I'm very proud of
1: <laughs> Thank you. I th- I said this episode was not going to be self-congratulatory,
0: but no, I am because you came at this from a very very different perspective, from a regulator perspective, and you dove in in an in-house position, something you haven't done before, and those are new skills
1: to learn. It's true, and it's not always easy because, indeed, sometimes the reflex is, "Oh no, we cannot do this." But having worked in this space for so long, I think I've become very comfortable with asking the next question. So, how can I help you obtain that uh, or achieve that purpose that you are looking for that Chris was also alluding to? And I think that is a great recommendation and maybe a good point to end this conversation on.
3: Can I say one more thing before we end it though? Of course. I'm really, I'm really proud of all of us together because yes, this was an awesome idea that Paul, you had and Kay had and how it all came together with Chris and I working to support you. And here we are, hundred episodes later, and we all continue to evolve. We're still talking to each other. We're evolving into the future. And I think one of the most exciting things about this profession, although it's different from a lot of others that are more stable, this one's is a This is a constantly evolving profession, and you you evolve as people, you evolve as a community, and who knows where we're going to be by the two hundredth. I
0: definitely, definitely echo that because. As I was just explaining at my new company, if you don't stay involved as a privacy person, if you put your head down to cross the T's and dot the I's for two weeks, all of a sudden things have changed in those two weeks and you don't know you're where mine. you're standing. <laughs> so it's definitely a profession that you have to stay on top of and you have to watch. If you're not doing that, then you're an operations person. You're not a strategy person.
1: Chris, any final words?
2: Similar to Hillary, he's proud of the 100 episodes that you guys have done. It's fantastic. See, I wasn't going to say what <laughs> the next hundred. I would have said the opposite, which is we really hit a thousand. I mean, let's take this
1: exponential. <laughs>
0: We're getting there. We're getting there.
1: So that would be another twenty-seven years, I think, before we get there. But maybe we aim for two hundred.
0: And I will have a recorder at IAPP in DC. It is April eleventh and twelfth. I think I'll be there on the tenth for the Inner Circle. But it's the eleventh and the twelfth, so we'll be there. I'll have a recorder. I'll be walking around. I'll be at the booth. Hopefully, I'll have stickers. You know, everybody should come see us. If I can wrangle Hillary and Chris, if they're going to be there into a room, we'll actually say hello to each other in person in the first time in two years.
1: Absolutely. I'm very sorry to miss that. But transatlantic travel is not on my schedule yet. Privacy conferences are not on my schedule yet. First, (laughs) I need to set up a program.
0: Yeah, Chris and I are trying to knock all the sicknesses out of the way before we get there.
1: (laughs) Very good. I'll have most of them covered. (laughs) and <laughs> best wishes to you all cheers so on that note we'll end we'll end this part of the conversation but we don't end the podcast yet because we have a very a very special thing for you as i yes. mentioned before we were very lucky to be able to interview the kenyan data commissioner who opened a privacy training course yesterday that i'm giving here this week together with a lot of other people and she spent a, a few minutes with us telling us about the state of privacy and data protection and the work that her office is doing here in Kenya, trying to become one of the front leaders on the African continent on on data protection. We'll be talking soon much more about Africa. We have a few guests lined up yeah. who will share more stories about the developments here because it is fascinating what is happening at, at this continent. So without further ado, let's listen to the Kenyan Data Commissioner. So, Madam Commissioner, thank you very much for joining me. You've just opened the Data Protection Humanitarian Action training course here in Nairobi, Kenya. But data protection has been an important issue in Kenya for already quite a while. With the introduction of your new law, the establishment of your uh, data protection authority, what is the current state of play of data protection here?
4: In- thank you, Paul, for having me on this podcast. And I want to really thank ICRC for the opportunity to come and open this training. I think it's a, it's a major milestone in the East Africa, and Africa, and I understand it's the second in Africa because there was one in Senegal. I think it's the best thing in terms of building capacity. Coming back to where we are in terms of Kenya, just a bit of background. Of course, Kenya enacted the Data Protection Act in 2019, so it is slightly over two years. The office, after the enaction on the law, we came to office in 2020, November. So we are slightly over, say, 15 months into office. During that time, what, what is the play? What have we been able to implement? As a new office, of course, we needed to establish structures in terms of getting uh, a plan in place. Under the, uh, under the UK government, we were able to get our strategic plan, uh-huh. which is running from 2020, 2022 to 2025. We thought initially to just have it for a period of three years because it's at the start. We also have our staff establishment approved by the necessary government structure. We are now in the process of populating, and that is a recruiting. We will be recruiting staff between this year and next financial year. Three, we have had budget allocation increase. Initially, we started with a budget. When we came to office, we've seen it increase by almost 500 folds, moving towards uh, improvement of the budget. It's likely to even go up next year. Like, However, budget allocation is not only sufficient. So that is part of the reason why we are looking at about partnering with other partners. Three, we have been able to come up with a curriculum on data protection with the Kenya School of Government. The reason we picked that as a, as a strategy, we realized as a new office there was need, there was a serious capacity gap in data protection across all government institutions being a new area. And since we are thin, we thought we'd partner with one of the government institutions that is able to actually spread their awareness. So to, to our target is to have one training every month just for awareness is not a specialized training. Mm-hmm. Targeting are uh, mostly government institution and also it's open to the private sector. So that's the other thing we need to do. During the Privacy Day this year, we we're able to hold awareness, uh, awareness for for the public. We've also had what we call the regulations. Three sets of regulations were now passed by Parliament just last month. That helps us in terms of enforcement. We have uh, one on general regulation, we have one on in compliance and Compliance and enforcement, and the third one on registration. As a result, beginning July this year, we expected to register all data controllers and data data processors. In a nutshell, I would say those are our key milestones in the last sixteen, fifteen months. Of course, we have key priorities, whether it's awareness creation, whether it's putting in place, enhancing our standard operating procedure, dealing with the and capacity building for institution. Our strategy has four pillars. The first pillar is on awareness. The second pillar is on institutional strengthening. The third pillar is on legal infrastructure.
1: That's impressive already in such a short period of time.
4: (laughs) We are trying, we are trying. So
1: do people actually understand the need for data protection already? Do they understand why the law was adopted?
4: Yes and no. Uh, Yes, from a private sector perspective, there is a lot of interest in the private sector. Uh, You can see a very serious push for compliance and you can understand why the driver for data protection in Kenya was uh, Vision 2030 under what a policy framework we call the digital economy blueprint, which was passed by His Excellency Mm -hmm. Uh, Uruwege Kenyatta in 2019 and as part of Smart City. One of the pillars, one of the cross-cutting issues discussed at length then was GDP, uh, was uh, the issue of data protection. Uh, Of course, this was coming immediately after the passage of GDPR. That had had an influence because most Mm -hmm. of the companies in Kenya are most likely to have a push or interaction with companies in Europe. So, of course, in terms of compliance, we will see a lot of compliance in terms of private sector. They are very keen. Most of the requests that come through are for private sector. The public sector, those who deal with big data, we've seen institutions that are dealing with civil registration. They are also keen on data protection. I would not say because there's a survey done some time back by Amnesty International, the awareness at levels of the level of public is still low. And that is part of our priority. So it's what informs our priority. It's part of the things that we are really seeking partnership with so development partners, civil society organizations such as Open Society, Amnesty, GIZ, so that awareness. Uh, to the members of the public, they appreciate because we cannot change the data-sharing culture unless the members of the public appreciate the reason how it affects them. It can can be discriminated against. Uh, if your information is a data breach or uh, two, there could be identity theft. So I would, for the members of the public, it's not that much. It's something that we're working on.
1: And hence all the awareness yes, raising yes, that yes. you are doing. Yes, yes. Looking at the broader African perspectives, we, we will be talking on the podcast more about Africa later this year because... Yes. We see a lot of movement around the continent, um, and of course, you cannot cover a continent just in one-hour conversation. But there is a lot of a lot happening in Africa right now. Also, a lot of interaction between all the various data protection authorities. Mm. Are you involved in
4: that? Yes, we are. We are under Madame Patricia of of the data protection officer commissioner of Ghana. She has uh, been pushing really hard for us to sit around the table so that we are able to push for the African. One a unified voice, share experiences, and also begin um, helping those who are still behind in as far as data protection is concerned. As a, as a result, we have a data protection authority association of Africa. It's hosted in Morocco, and Madam Patricia is the chair. We have the Uganda there, we have Tanzania there, we have Nigeria there, we have many African countries, South Africa, or we have West Africa countries involved in it. So there's a lot of push and activity. Some of the key things we've done this year. One, during the data privacy week in January, we all shared different things that we are doing. It was impressive to see different countries were holding podcasts, different countries were holding webinars. And one of the ones that we sat on as as leaders of the region was one hosted by Madam Sotela, the data commissioner of of, uh, Uganda, where she was able to sit around the table just to talk about the African conversation on data protection. Uh, Indeed, people noted that the what we call commonly as Malabu Convention, has gaps. And therefore, they need to review it. Is the one on cyber security and, and to review it and actually strengthen it as far as data protection is concerned.
1: Thank you very much for your time today. I know you need to get back to Nairobi, but thank you very much. It was a pleasure speaking to you.
4: Thank you, Paul. We look forward to your future. Ooh, that was
0: awesome, Paul.
1: Thank you, Kay. But then on that note, we really end this 100th episode of Serious Privacy. So thank you all for being with us for all of these 100 episodes. Uh, thank you to Chris and Hillary to join for joining us today. Thank you, Kay, for being a great co-host and all the fun that we've had, despite the fact that we still only have seen each other in real life for 45 minutes <laughs> in our lives. Once! <laughs> Once. Ditto. Thank you all. We look forward to hearing from you via seriousprivacy at trustart.com or via info at seriousprivacy.eu. Find us on LinkedIn at seriousprivacy. Find us on Twitter at at podcastprivacy. You'll find Kay on Twitter as Heart of Privacy and myself as Europol B. Until the next 100 episodes, thank you and goodbye.
0: Bye, y'all.
2: That was Serious Privacy.
1: So, Kay, did you hear that the TrustArk Trust Center is revolutionizing the way businesses manage trust?
0: I did! And with the Trust Center, achieving customer trust is no longer a months-long process. It can be just days.
1: Yeah. Have you been in a situation where a customer wanted information and you need to scramble to find everything? Just imagine all of that was at hand in one central hub. With info on privacy, legal, security, compliance, system availability?
0: Yeah, you can lower your legal, regulatory, and reputational risk with instant updates and speed up your sales cycle with private and public document sharing.
1: Trust Center solves the problem of red tape and dependencies, ensuring your trust and safety information is accurate, compliant, and available.
0: And you know the best part? You'll save time and cost. How often have you gone to multiple departments and it's taken weeks so you can remove bottlenecks and effortlessly streamline your efforts.
1: Trust Center Trust becomes your key differentiator in today's digital economy
0: experienced enhanced customer trust, operational speed, and efficiency, while enjoying comprehensive coverage for diverse
1: stakeholders. So why wait? Start streamlining trust management with TrustArk's Trust Center. Visit TrustArk.com slash more trust. That is TrustArk.com slash more trust. There's a lot of trust in that. A lot of trust.